Let me take you back to 1954. Uh, the English runner Jim Peters was regarded then as the greatest marathon runner in the world. In the previous three years, he had broken the world record four times and he was the first man to run the 42-kilometre marathon in less than two hours and 20 minutes. And so when it came to the 1954 Commonwealth Games that were being held in Vancouver, uh, Peters was the standout favourite for the gold medal in the marathon. The, uh, the men's marathon was held in the middle of the day on what turned out to be Vancouver's hottest day of that year. It took a terrible toll on the runners. Only six runners uh, made it to the finish line. Well, such was the pace that Peters had run. By the time he reached the, the stadium, uh, he was a staggering 17 minutes ahead of the rest of the field. It's almost unheard of in marathon terms. But he was also exhausted and badly dehydrated. Uh, the English runners were badly supported, very poorly supported that day, so Peters had no idea that he had such a huge lead and he could have slowed his pace and still won easily. And as he entered the stadium, he stumbled and fell. He, he righted himself, he staggered forward and fell again. In a semi-conscious state, Jim Peters fell and staggered and fell and staggered on at least a dozen times as the crowd of 35,000 watched in horrified disbelief. Uh, English teammates urged him on from the infield. Women began to weep openly and men shouted at officials to do something. But the officials, of course, were afraid to go near him in case that led to his disqualification. Uh, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, who happened to be on the infield, was so moved by Peter's plight and his effort that he had to turn away from the track in tears. It took Peter's 11 minutes to stagger and crawl a mere 200 yards. And then as uh, Jim Peters reached the finish line for the track events, the English trainer, Mick Mayers, ran out and caught him in his arms so he wouldn't go any further. But the finish line for the marathon was still 220 yards away. And so despite an unforgettable effort, Jim Peters had actually failed to finish. He was placed on a stretcher and he was rushed to hospital in a coma. Uh, he survived, but he never ran again. And as commentators reviewed Jim Peters' race, it was generally agreed that he could have easily finished the race and, and won the gold medal if he had been properly supported along the way and if Jim Peters himself had been more focused on finishing well. You see, in marathon running, finishing well is not just about the last lap of the stadium, it's about the whole race. Well, one of the key lessons uh, from our final passage this weekend uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 is about how to finish well. Uh, this is not just for the grey-headed people you know, here who are getting closer to the finish line. Uh, this is for the young people as well. It's about the whole race. To be able to say at the end of your life, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. 
Now, we know that our salvation is a gift, the gift from God. Uh, and we know that our place in heaven depends on him. Uh, that he will get us to the finish line if we truly belong to him. It's about the perseverance of the saints. That, that's what God does. Um, why then does it matter how we finish? Or for that matter, how we live along the way? So what if we stumble the whole way home? If, if we live to please ourselves, if we're careless with the gospel, and if we fear the humiliation of being associated with Jesus, if we're going to be carried across the finish line anyway. And I think the answer is that it matters because God's kingdom and God's honour is at stake here. Uh, God in his wisdom has chosen to use us, his people, as part of his means of building the kingdom of Jesus as we tell the gospel and, and live godly lives. It matters because the honour and reputation of the Lord Jesus is at stake. We're his representatives to a watching world. Um, the world judges Jesus much more by what we do than what Jesus has said or done himself. That's, that's the way it, it is. And furthermore, uh, persevering in the Christian life and finishing well uh, also matters to you and me personally because we also have to live with ourselves and our conscience before God and because um, our desire and our effort to honour God is the evidence that we have that we truly belong to him. So there could not be more compelling reasons, I don't think, to finish well, to persevere in following Jesus right to the end. And what Paul is about to say is clearly of extreme importance because of the solemn way that he introduces it in verse 1 of chapter 4. Have a look there. Uh, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, so he's calling God as, as witness, as it were, who will judge the living and the dead. And in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Do you see what's at stake here, Timothy? It's so important that it's about life and death. It's about judgment and vindication. It's about what Jesus will find when he returns. It's about how his kingdom will grow. And I guess Timothy's all ears. Um, so should we be. And I've, I've taken what Paul says to Timothy in chapter 4 and, and what he says at the end of chapter 3 and I've tried to crystallise it into three principles that you and I need to adopt if we're going to persevere along the race and finish well. The first is found in verses uh, 2 to 5 where Paul's solemn charge to Timothy is given in verse 2. He says, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. And uh, my guess is that you might be looking at that and thinking, well, I, I think that's a great passage for Scott and, and Peter and you know, others in our congregation who are called to preach. But as I said yesterday, any passage giving instructions to a preacher must have application to the listener. And so, for example, in verse 2, if the preacher must be prepared to preach in season and out of season, to correct, rebuke and encourage, then surely what's also being said is that as listeners, 
as hearers, we're to receive the word preached in season and out of season and to humbly accept correction and rebuke and encouragement as coming from God. If it's coming from his word, then it's coming from him. I hope you can see that. Um, I don't want you to think that I'm twisting Paul's words here just to try and expand the applicability. I want you to see that I'm, I'm pointing to the flip side, the implications for us of what Paul is saying to Timothy if we're not um, in, in the role of uh, a pastor-teacher. So if what Timothy is to do as he perseveres in serving Jesus is to faithfully preach the word in, in such a way that it leads to godly change in the lives of God's people, then it must also be true that what God intends is that you and I should be shaped. You, you, we should be shaped by the word of God as it is preached. And Paul gives two main reasons why we should base our lives on the Bible, why our lives should be shaped by the word of God. Firstly, in chapter 3 and verse 15, the scriptures point us to Jesus. Uh, the Bible does not save us in itself, but only as it reveals Jesus and his death as, a, as our substitute and as it calls us to trust in him. And that's why it's so important for parents, especially fathers, to be reading the Bible to their children. But it's the second reason that I want to focus on, and that is that the Bible or the Scriptures is God's Word to us. Now, God actually speaks to us through the written words. There it is in verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. I'm sure you've heard a, a hundred sermons on, on that verse. Um, it, it's probably the most powerful statement that the Bible makes about itself. And it's this term, God breathe, uh, that I, I just want to focus on for a minute. Uh, some of the older translations, if you're, if you're an older person, you remember um, you know, all scripture is inspired by God. It was an older translation. But the English word inspired is really too weak. Uh, it's open to misunderstanding. For example, it could mean that the writers of Scripture simply wrote down whatever they, they thought as they were inspired by wonderful thoughts about God, you know, uh, whether they were true or not. But the Greek word here, as, as you probably know, actually, literally means God breathed or breathed out by God. Uh, you and I speak as we're breathing out, you know, the air is going over our vocal cords and our tongue and, and that's how we, we speak. Um, God breathe means that the whole Bible from cover to cover is the product of God himself. God breathed it out as, a, as it were through the human writers. Even though they were writing and they were expressing their thoughts and, and their, their personalities and their, their context in the world um, at the time of history in which they're writing, the result is God's speech. Uh, this does not imply that Paul and others sat there with a, a pen in hand sort of waiting to write down the next word. Uh, what was that, God? Could you say that again? Um, it means that God supervised the writing of the books of the Bible 
making use of the different times and circumstances and personalities in such a way that it can actually be called his word. It means then that the original writings in their original languages were without error, uh, completely true in everything that they claim. And this has huge implications for us. It means that we must humbly sit under the authority of the Bible. We don't sit over it, you know, looking down, examining it critically. We humbly sit under the, under the Bible, under the Word, as it rebukes us. As, and as we, we do what it says, we're being trained to live lives that honour the Lord Jesus. We're being shaped. Uh, it means that we must use the Bible to train our minds to think God's thoughts after him, to think like God thinks. And the outcome of living by the Bible is not super, a super spiritual person, kind of detached from the real world, but as we read in verse 17, it's, it's a man or a woman who is thoroughly equipped for every good work. Because you see, what the Word of God does as we read it and the, the Holy Spirit applies it to the heart is that it, it changes our hearts and it gives us a longing that God would be honoured by the whole world, that the Lord Jesus would be exalted above all the counterfeit gods and loved simply for who he is. And as we saw the other day in Jesus' words from Matthew uh, 5 and verse 16, you are to let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Not to draw attention to yourself, not loving self, but loving that God would receive the praise. Uh, like Sebastian Bach, you know, writing his music in order that God might be praised. And, uh, and we will receive the joy of serving him. Uh, why then, if, it, if all this is true, do we not treasure God's word more than we do? Why don't we treasure it like we should? Why are we so often complacent and lazy when it comes to the Bible? Um, maybe Mary Ann Payton can shake our complacency just a little by her words. Um, I told you this morning about how John and Mary Payton went to the island of Tanner uh, in Vanuatu in 1858. And they went there so that the people of Tanner might, uh, have, they might know Jesus and have the Bible in their own tongue. Their intention was to translate um, the Bible. And uh, how not many months later Mary gave birth to, to little Peter, but before she could bring, uh, begin work on learning the local language and then translating the Bible, Mary died from a tropical disease. Let me tell you that as she lay dying in, in uh, John's hands, John's arms, she did not murmur against God or against her husband for bringing her there to the New Hebrides. Rather, so strong was her passion for God's word and, and the one that it revealed, the Lord Jesus, that she spoke these remarkable dying words to her husband. She said, I do not regret leaving home and friends. If I had to do it all over, I would do it with more pleasure. Yes, with all my heart. And then she died. 
Uh, so as the, as the Bible is faithfully preached to you in a way that explains its meaning and applies uh, God's instruction, will you make it your aim to humbly respond? To humbly respond to God and his word. The Holy Spirit will use God's word to convict, rebuke and encourage us. In season and out of season in chapter 4 and verse 2 essentially means whether it is convenient or welcome or not to the hearers. So Timothy, Timothy is to be faithful in preaching and every, every um, one who teaches the Bible is to be faithful whether it's convenient and welcome or not. Um, in more than 30 years of preaching I've never had anyone come to me and ask if I would preach on a particular passage that would address the sin that they're currently struggling with. <laughs> never had that request. Um, and what verse 2 means for all of us is that, that we're to submit to God's word on every occasion and listen with the expectation of having our, our faulty ways and our, our attitudes corrected, having our sins rebuked and, and being encouraged as God spurs us on with words of love and hope. Uh, Paul warns against the sort of preaching that merely tells people what they want to hear. You know, the, the God wants you to be healthy, the God wants you to be wealthy. Um, kind of preaching or the soft kind of preaching that avoids anything that might offend people's delicate self-image. Um, of course I don't need to tell you that is that that's not true biblical preaching uh, and it's not only misleading but it totally fails to prepare you for godly living. It won't help you in the race. How Jim Peters must have wished in 1954 that there had been some British race officials along the course. They should have been there to offer correction to the way that he was running, to tell him truthfully how he was going in the race and to encourage him. But apparently most of them had abandoned the marathon in order to witness the one mile race in the stadium between uh, Roger Bannister and John Landy. That race had been billed as the race of the century and so the, the British officials that were assigned to the marathon had all sneaked away so they wouldn't miss the one, the one mile race in, the, in, the, in the, uh, the main stadium. In practical terms, Paul means that as, as you and I sit and listen to a preacher, we're, we're not doing so in order to be entertained or thrilled by the, you know, the skill of the preaching um, like the people described in, in verses 3 and 4, but we're, we're to be, there to be challenged and changed and encouraged, encouraged in our walk with God. So the essence of what verses 1 to four, 5 means for us, I think, this morning, is that, that we're to examine the attitude that we have when it comes to the time for the sermon, particularly on Sunday mornings, or whenever it is that um, you know, we're, we're listening to God's word preached. Do you and I, because I regularly sit under preaching now of others, uh, do, do we come with the expectation of hearing the truth from God about how we are to run the race and how we're doing, how we're to live for him? Do we come with the, the expectation that God will shape us by his word? Because the Bible is one of the most vital means of grace that God uses by his spirit to sustain us.
Uh, now, when we get to verse 6, we discover why it is that, that Paul has written the way that he, he's writing this letter to Timothy. Why he's spoken in terms of, of kind of handing on the baton of gospel ministry to Timothy. Uh, urging Timothy to remain faithful and find his strength in the Lord Jesus. It is because Paul knows that he's about to die at the hands of the Roman Emperor. Paul knows that he's come to the end of the race, the finish line, as it were, in his earthly journey with Jesus. And this is exactly what he means by verse 6. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. The image in verse 6 of Paul being poured out like a drink offering um, is one that he has taken directly from the Old Testament sacrificial system. Uh, and there we find that immediately after an animal was sacrificed on the altar, uh, the final act of the sacrifice was the slow pouring out by the priest of a portion of wine to the, to the side of the altar. And that, that was a sign that the sacrifice was over. The sacrifice was complete. And it seems that what Paul is saying here by using this image is that he is willingly offering his life to God as a final sacrifice, a final act of loyalty to King Jesus. If this is what it takes, then God is welcome to my life, to take it from me, for his purposes, for his glory, for his kingdom. It's a final act of submission, if you like, to God's purposes that will signal the finish. And that's why Paul then goes on to say that he now fully expects to receive what God has promised to all who trust him. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. In our English translations, it looks as though Paul is putting the emphasis on himself. It sounds a little bit boastful, doesn't it? What he has accomplished. You know, I have fought the good fight. I have run the race and so on. Therefore, I have earned the crown of righteousness. But the text doesn't say that at all. Not in, not in the Greek. Anyway, in the Greek, the emphasis is on the nature of the Christian life or what must be endured to finish well. So the Greek literally says, the good struggle I have struggled, the course I have finished, the faith I have kept. So the emphasis is not on Paul, but it's on the struggle, the course, the faith. In other words, the Christian life is a struggle, it's a struggle against the broken world, against your sinful self, and it's against Satan, the devil. The Christian life is a gruelling course with many obstacles and hardships that must be faced. We've talked about that this morning. And the Christian life is about trusting the Lord Jesus and all that is revealed about him in the Bible. That's the faith. And Paul's already told us in this letter that he's, he's persevered, persevered through everything that has happened in his life. Every hardship, every responsibility laid him only by the grace that God has supplied at the time. 
And so, for example, in chapter 1, verse 9, he writes, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Have some more water. And the crown of righteousness that Paul is now looking forward to is that gift of righteousness that Paul has because he belongs to, to, to uh, the Lord Jesus. Remember what it is that you and I fundamentally lack and, and what disqualifies us in the first place from any part in God's kingdom. It's righteousness. That's what we, that's what we don't have. We do not have any goodness of our own that makes us fit to live with God in his kingdom. What we do have is a heavy load of sin, that our, our rebellion against God, that cripples us and separates us from him. But then along comes Jesus. And through his death on the cross, he takes the punishment that we deserve and when we trust in Jesus, accepting what he has done on our behalf, God sees us as forgiven, our, our slate the record of our sin is, is wiped clean and we share in the righteousness of Jesus. It's a wonderful gift. This is the basis for Paul's expectation that when he is judged by God on that day, uh, he'll receive his crown of righteousness. Not because he has obtained it by being such a good fellow, but because the Lord Jesus has obtained it for him and God has been keeping it in the cupboard for him for that day. Did you notice at the start of verse 8, this promise of salvation has been kept in safe storage by God himself so that no opponent can take it away from Paul. God's promised this salvation to all who trust him and he will deliver it. So the essence of all that is this. Perseverance and finishing well is about remaining faithful to Jesus. Paul captures this in the little phrase at the end of verse 8, who have longed for his appearing. And I think the picture there is, is one of loyal subjects who are waiting for the return of their rightful king. They love their king. They believe that only he holds the key to their security and their future and their happiness, and only he can restore the kingdom to reflect his perfect character. And so every aspect of their daily lives is lived in the expectation of his coming. They want to be ready for him. Uh, they want him to find them loyal to him when, the, when he comes. Not because they fear him, but because they love him. They admire him. And I can't stress too much that the secret to perseverance in the Christian life and finishing well is about being shaped by the gospel and therefore living every day for Jesus. Responding to hardships, seeking to imitate God in all of our relationships and our daily responsibilities of work and raising the, the kids and, and caring for the grandchildren and helping out in the community. It's about being faithful to Jesus in all of the small and mundane things of life, saying no to sin and making yourself open and willing to take risks for the kingdom of Jesus because you long for his appearing. You can't wait 
we all love good endings, don't we? Um, I'm a, I, I, I read a fair bit of friction, uh, fi- friction, fiction. <laughs> There's friction in the fiction too that I read. I like sort of murder mysteries and other, you know, um, when I've got some time to relax. Um, and I love a writer who's able to give a, a good ending. And it's, it's, it's true when we're reading a letter from Paul as well. We're wondering how this is going to end. And this letter has an amazing ending. The kind that lifts us up in praise to God. It, it's, it's filled with raw emotion and triumph. Our hearts are stirred, I think, as Paul appeals in verse 9 for Timothy to, to come to him quickly in Rome before it's too late where he's waiting in the dungeon for his execution and we shake our heads at the way so many who should have supported Paul in Rome have deserted him. But we're lifted from, I guess, the ordinariness of our own small world in Port Macquarie or wherever it is and the discouragement that we're so prone to when trials come as Paul proclaims the faithfulness of God and the the victory of Christ in the end. Uh, I'm sure it would be interesting to look at all the, you know, those personal details of verses 9 to 17, but we haven't got time for that. I want to take you directly to verse 18 as we finish. What is Paul's conclusion about his imprisonment and suffering at the hands of the Roman emperor and his impending death? What's his conclusion? Well, there it is in verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Paul does not mean that he expects an angel to swoop in at the, the last minute and rescue him from the prison, say, like hap- what happened to Peter in Acts chapter 12. What Paul means is that the Roman Empire will not have the last say. It may appear that my life is in the hands of the enemy, in the hands of the, the emperor, but don't be deceived by appearances. My life is in God's hands and I can trust him without reservation. They think I'm receiving the ultimate punishment but I will be receiving God's astonishing grace as I share in Jesus' victory over death for he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. That's his conclusion. And what I want you to see from this today is that part of the method of persevering with Jesus and finishing well is to trust God in every situation, especially when you can't, for the life of you, work out what's going on. To keep on trusting God to bring you home. You know, after he failed to finish the marathon in, uh, at the 1954 Commonwealth Games, Jim Peters and other marathon competitors couldn't help feeling that those running the games had badly let them down. They felt let down. You see, well before the race, Jim Peters and his fellow English runner, Stan Cox, had carefully measured the marathon course together. And they found that the course was three quarters of a mile, you know, in the new language, that I understand too, 1,200 metres, too long. And they reported this to the officials and, and they gave evidence. 
But the race officials, you know what race officials are like? Bureaucracy. They were not prepared to alter the course so close to the race. It was too much trouble. So Jim Peters had actually completed the true length of the marathon even before he entered the stadium on that day. As I said earlier, the British officials who were meant to to be along the the route, uh, meant to support the runners during the race, they'd gone to see if Bannister and Landy could beat the four-minute mile, which incidentally both did. Um, And all of this had contributed to Peter's failing to finish at all. Paul is saying that when you are struggling, when you are dealing with some terrible hardship or when you are being persecuted, when you feel that the enemy is winning, God has not abandoned you, he hasn't left the course and he hasn't moved the finish line. God will not let you down and we know this for certain because of what God has already done at the cross. That was the harder thing and so you can trust him without reservation in the smaller things. He's faithfully working all things for good for those who trust him and are called according to his purpose. Keep on trusting him to to deliver you and bring you and all that he loves safely to his kingdom. Uh, In Hebrews chapter 11 the writer is looking around at the stadium at, at all of the believers who have gone before us and and who have persevered and finished well. And he writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The plan for finishing well, be shaped by the word of God. Be faithful to Jesus. Keep trusting God to bring you home. And as Paul concludes, in his letter, to him be the glory for ever and ever. Amen.